This morning we continue in our uh, series in Amos and we read this morning from Amos chapter 6. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelna and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says no. Then they will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given a command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Libo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. And may God bless that reading to us. Now let's, let's pray as we consider this part of God's word. Father God, would you humble us now to hear you speak? Lord, help us understand the words that you have preserved in scripture for us. We pray particularly that you would help us understand how these words from so long ago to people who are not like us apply also to us. Help us to see how, uh, what, help us to hear what you would have us hear. Would you change us so that we may be more the people that you would have us be? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we ready? That was the question the Australian government put to the Defence Forces Director of Military Preparedness a little while back to find out if our country was ready for a worldwide disaster. The government commissions a report, they ask the military, tell us how ready are we if the unthinkable happens. 
the global shutdown during COVID, that sort of raised some alarms. We realised, oh, there's some issues with our supply chains. Well, the government wants to find out what happens if something were to happen again, something worse. How well could we as a nation stand up to another pandemic or a global war or a widespread natural disaster? Are we prepared for the worst? That was the question the government put to the military. The answer they got back, no, we're not ready. We are not at all ready for a major disruption to global trade. In fact, in just three months, our country would run out of fuel. In just three weeks, we would run out of vital medical supplies. And if we learned anything during the pandemic, it's this, that in just three days, we would run out of toilet paper. Now, this data is actually a few years old. This counter came out after COVID. So presumably, we don't need to worry because all of these issues have been you know, fixed up by now because surely the government wouldn't commission a report and not do something about it, right? Now, Australia may not be ready to face disaster. But our question this morning is, how about you? This morning we're digging into Amos 6 and a question that will arise out of our discussion is, are we ready for the end of all things? Are we ready for the day of final judgment? Are we ready for the day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth? Now, maybe you've thought about that before. Maybe you never have. That's okay. But what would it actually mean for us to be ready? What does that look like? What could we do? We're going to try and answer some of those questions this morning. But of course, all of this discussion arises because in Amos, we meet a people who were not ready for God's judgment. You see, the book of Amos is a book warning about God's judgment. The people of Israel, God's very own people, have not been loving God with all their hearts. They have not been loving their neighbours as themselves. And so God warns them. He gives them these nine chapters announcing his judgment, but warning them so that they might repent. But despite warning after warning after warning, as the book of Amos unfolds, it becomes clear that God's people are not ready to hear this judgment. And as we see in verse 1 of chapter 6, keep your Bibles open, have a look. God's people thought they were safe. They didn't think judgment was coming. Have a look, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Now notice here, Amos combines the the two divided kingdoms of God's people. He mentions both Zion, which is where the temple stood in Jerusalem. He mentions Mount Samaria in Israel. He's addressing both the divided kingdoms and he says, woe. He picks out the most prominent places, the mountains. And he addresses the most prominent people, the, the notable men, the rulers, that the people of Israel came to for help. And these rulers, they're ruling over what they think is the greatest country on earth. 
the foremost nation. And so here we have these rulers. They're rich, they're powerful, they're famous. And the nation they lead, it's the envy of all their neighbours. Israel in Amos's day was a picture of success. It was politically stable. It was economically prosperous. It was militarily formidable. And so it's no surprise that these people that Amos addresses in verse 1 felt secure. They felt safe. They felt nothing could touch them. But what they didn't realize is that all their wealth and prosperity and power had come at the cost of faithfulness to the one who had given it to them. And so Amos issues this warning, woe to you. In verse 2, Amos invites these rulers to take a look at some of their neighboring cities. And he's basically asking, asking them, do you think you're better than them? Now, in many ways, Israel was better. They were bigger, they were wealthier, they were stronger. And Israel should have been morally better. They were God's people. But the sad fact was that Israel was not better. And just as the cities mentioned there, Kalna, Hamath, and Gath, well, they're about to be conquered by the Assyrian army, and so would Israel. Israel's rulers were putting off the day of disaster, verse 3. They were living in denial. Surely nothing bad could happen to them. But by refusing to believe the warnings about God's judgment, they brought it upon themselves. They invited God's judgment. Woe to you who are complacent. In verse 4, the woe continues, and now Amos calls out these rulers for their self-indulgence. Have a look at verse 4. He says, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest Oceans. Now, these are the rulers. They're not serving their people, are they? The people of Israel come looking for leadership, but they find their rulers lazing about on fancy couches, inventing songs to help them pass the time. The poor come looking for mercy, but the rulers are growing fat on all the fancy food. They're getting drunk on fancy wine. They're pampering themselves with fancy skincare products. They are self-indulgent to the extreme. It's a repulsive picture. But it's actually not their indulgence that gets Amos and God most angry. Now, the biggest failure of these rulers is not their extravagance. It's what we read at the end of verse 6. He says, But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You see, it's one thing for Israel's leaders to be living large, but it's quite another thing to be partying while your own people are about to be destroyed. They're celebrating when they should be grieving. Now, it's interesting, Amos uses Joseph in this verse. He's referring to all of God's people, 
but he mentions Joseph. And I think he singles out Joseph to recall the moment in Genesis 37, which we've been talking about with the kids, when Joseph's brothers, they're contemplating killing him, they instead decide to put him in a pit. And so they come in Genesis 37, they see Joseph, they seize him, they strip him of his robe, they put him in the pit, and in the very next verse, you know what it says? And then they sat down to eat. They've just, they're just preparing to sell their own brother into slavery and then, ooh, picnic time. They sat down to eat. So you can imagine Joseph, he's in the pit, he's screaming for help, he's begging for mercy. His brothers are just having a picnic. Well, that's what Israel's leaders are doing here in Amos. Their people are looking to them for justice and yet they're sitting down for a picnic. Their people are about to face God's judgment and the leaders, they're partying. And so God's verdict is clear in verse 7. The foremost people ruling over the foremost nation, well, they'll be the foremost to go into exile. Amos brings a word to the complacent, a word to the negligent, finally, a word to the arrogant. Verse 8, he says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares. Notice how serious God is here. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. You see, God's people were proud. And they had much to be proud of. Their list of achievements was long. In verse 13, God picks up some of their boasts. He says, you, were, you who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaan by our own strength? Lodabar and Carnaim were cities that had been conquered by Israel under Jeroboam the king. But the irony is that Lodabar literally means not anything, nothing. And so while Israel's rulers are celebrating the conquest over Lodabar, God is almost mocking them by saying, you're celebrating over nothing. You've conquered nothing. You've won nothing and very soon you will have nothing. Verse 8, I will deliver up the city and everything in it. After the Assyrian army has swept through, verse 9, if ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And when a relative comes to collect the bodies and finds just one survivor, together they will live in such fear of God's judgment that they dare not even mention his name. Israel who boasted in their strength but who did nothing to use that strength to help the poor and the oppressed well they'll be destroyed the proud will be humbled the arrogant will be crushed and a few decades later that is exactly what happens Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria, seizes control of Israel. 
and within 10 years, Samaria is destroyed. Friends, that's Amos 6. A word to the complacent. A warning to the rulers who thought God's judgment could never come on them. A word to the negligent. A rebuke on those living lives of luxury while ignoring the cries of those who need help. And a word to the arrogant. An announcement of judgment on those who boast in their strength but show no care for justice or righteousness. It was a word to Israel then. The question is, is this a word to us? What can we learn from a prophecy that is addressed to the rulers of a kingdom, which none of us are, who are facing a military conquest, which we're not, as a direct result of God's judgment, which, if we're in Christ, we have been spared. But what do we actually learn from this passage? Now, we actually really need to be careful when we try and apply the Old Testament to ourselves because there's not always a direct link. But there is something for us to learn from this passage. Because while we may not be facing God's judgment in the way that Israel was back then, we live in the shadow of another judgment, a greater judgment. Because the Lord Jesus who came to this earth once as saviour, he has promised that he will come again as judge. He will come to bring an end to his creation and to judge all those who have lived in it. And so that the day is coming when all people will have to give account to Jesus, the judge. And so living in light of God's final judgment, there's three things I want you to hear this morning. First, a word to the complacent. Israel's rulers lived thinking there was no way that God could possibly judge them. They thought disaster could not come upon them. And friends, it is so easy for us to live the same way. Right now, we don't see God holding sinners to account, do we? We don't see the guilty being punished. We see people getting away with it. It's almost the opposite. It's as if God is blessing the sinners. We live in a world where the wicked prosper, where evil men rule the world. It doesn't look as though that is going to change anytime soon. It's easy for us to think that you know, God's judgment isn't real, it's not coming. And in our own world, everything just keeps going on and on, just the way it always has. Eat, sleep, work, repeat. Eat, sleep work, repeat. And as we trudge along through the endless cycle, day after day, eat, sleep, work, repeat. Well, I don't know about you, but some days it's hard to remember that God even exists, let alone that he's going to come and judge the world. I don't think it's just me, is it? It's so easy to live like God is not there. 
Or that if he is there, that he doesn't really care about the things that I do or that anyone else does. But friends, and this is for all of us, but particularly if you're here and you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, the message of the Bible is really clear. God really cares about you. He made you, and because he made you, he loves you. And because he loves you, he can't stand it when you refuse to belong to him. He can't stand it when you take that, this life that he made for you and you run off with it as if it's yours. And because he loves you and everyone else on the planet, he can't stand it when, you, when your self-centeredness makes you do things that hurt other people. And so he has promised that he will hold everyone to account for the things that they've done. One day we will all have to stand before Jesus the judge and give an accounting for our lives. And friends, we'll all be found guilty. I will be found guilty. You will be found guilty. And we would all face the just punishment of eternal separation from the God of life. But because God loves you, he sent you a saviour. One who faced God's judgment in your place. And so there is a way out from God's judgment. There is a window to freedom, but you must repent and turn to Jesus. You must trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, friends, don't be complacent. Don't go about eat, drink, work, repeat, thinking that God isn't going to judge one day. He is. To find salvation today. Don't be complacent. Secondly, a word to the proud. Because there may be some of you here who know that Jesus will come to judge one day. But in your own mind, you're thinking, I'll be okay. I'm pretty good. Or maybe you're thinking, surely God will see all the, all the things that I've done. And that'll be enough. He'll have to let me in. But friends, just as in their pride, Israel thought that their own strength and power were enough to overcome God's judgment, we can so easily do the same, can't we? We think that we have the strength within us to do right, to be right with God. We think, I can be good enough. I can do enough. I can obey enough. But friends, that is pride. And the only way we can ever be right with God is not through pride, it's through humbling ourselves. To taking the lowly position of admitting our failure, admitting our sin, throwing our hands up in the air and saying to Jesus, I need help. Don't let pride get in the way. Humble yourself today. There's a word to the complacent, a word to the proud, but finally, and I, and I think this might actually be the most applicable to us, a word to the negligent. Now, hear me when I say, when I call you negligent, I'm calling myself negligent here too. 
Amos 6 paints a picture of Israel's rulers feasting and relaxing while those around them were facing ruin. And I think there's a way that we can be just like them. Think about it. If if hell is real, if God's judgment is real, people need to know that, don't they? Our neighbours need to know that. Our workmates need to know that. Our families need to know that. Surely there could be nothing more important than those that we love knowing that God's judgment is coming. Surely there could be nothing more important to us than making sure that everyone knows and responds to that news. But so often I think we as Christians live as if God's judgment is not real. We live lives consumed by all sorts of other things. Consumed with our jobs, we're consumed with our families, we're consumed with living large, feasting and celebrating, but we're not grieved over the ruin of Noosa. Remember in the Titanic movie, as the ship is going down, you get the musicians and they start to play? Now, apparently that really happened. There was eight musicians on the Titanic and they kept playing as long as they possibly could. The people around them were about to die and they did the best they could to ease their pain. Now, it's actually quite admirable what they did. But imagine there was something else that they could have done to help. Imagine there were more lifeboats that could have been loaded. Imagine there were more distress signals that could have been sent. Imagine there was more that could have been done to actually save people. But instead they chose to play their instruments. That would be idiocy, right? That would be stupid, an absolute waste. Sometimes I feel like that's what the church is doing. The ship is going down. Everyone out there is about to die facing God's judgment. And we have the resources to help them. We have the gospel, which is powerful to save them. We have the good news of sins forgiven and of wrath absolved and of resurrection promised. We've got the lifeboat. But instead we busy ourselves with playing music and eating cake. That's tragic, isn't it? Now, this is the part where I guilt you into all telling your friends about Jesus. I'm actually not going to do that. One, it won't work if I just guilt you. But two, I know that God has gifted you all in unique ways. And for some of you, you're absolutely able to speak and to share a reason for the hope that you have. And for others of you, you might not be able to. What I want to ask of you this week, would you pray? If we care about the ruin of Noosa, if we care about sinners dying apart from Christ, we should at least be praying, shouldn't we? Can I I ask that this week you spend, at the very least, spend five minutes praying for those that you know that are lost?
Would you do that this week? Why don't we do that now? Let me pray. Father God, we've been confronted with a word to your people who were complacent and negligent and arrogant, who went about their lives with little thought of you, who went about their lives thinking that judgment couldn't happen. And Lord, we learn from Israel's example that judgment absolutely did happen, that you did hold them to account. Lord, don't let us repeat their mistakes. Keep us from the complacency that makes us think that your judgment is not coming. Keep us from the pride that would have us try to save ourselves rather than humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus and accept his offer of help. But Lord, keep us from being negligent. We live as people who have been spared judgment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that. But Lord, don't let us be partying while those around us are facing an eternity without you. Lord, would you move us to grieve over the ruin of our world? And Lord, as you have gifted us, would you use us to speak of the hope that we have? We pray that by our lives, by our witness, by our words, but at least by our prayers, would you be showing mercy as we have received mercy? Would you be bringing more and more people out of judgment and into life with you? And we pray this for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.